tomorrow, <coughs> tomorrow morning uh, in our church, it, I'm not going to get into it, but for all of you singles and for you young couples that were once single uh, and are wishing you were single again, no, I'm just kidding. <coughs> uh, the message is going to be for you, so I really want you to listen to it. Uh, it's going to be directed straightly to you, and I will make reference to that tomorrow, but I'm telling you now, uh, it's, uh, it's just, it's, it's nothing, nothing dramatic or special. It's just in the course of coming through Proverbs. This is where we're at in, this, in these two verses tomorrow, one in particular. So I want you to listen very carefully, and I want you to understand it, and, uh, and then, you know, you'll see better after tomorrow morning, <coughs> what we're all about. And you know, when I went into the Army years and years and years ago, I remember when we were going through basic, you know, that was eight weeks back then or nine weeks. And they told us when we were done that <coughs> even though we had accomplished basic, we still didn't understand the Army. The Army was a very complex organization and it had a lot of, a lot of parts to it. And the guy, I remember the drill sergeant telling us that in time, if we stayed with it and stayed in the Army, and back then, you, if you were drafted, you were in for two years. If you enlisted, you were in for four. <coughs> and he said that if you spend your time in the Army, you'll, you'll completely understand it uh, better than you do right now. And, you know, and I, and I never forgot that. And, you know, I, I realized, you know, later on, what that the, the value of that was because the army is a very complex thing. It's got a lot of moving parts, got a lot of systems to it. And I thought years later, you know, that Christianity is the same way, the ministry the same way, learning the Bible is the same way. There's so many moving parts to it. And right now, <clears throat> you know, most of you, if not all of you, uh, you're at a point where you're 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 young. You're getting into the Bible. Uh, this is our singles ministry. We focus on what we want to do and how we want to accomplish things. And uh, it's a thing where uh, we've decided to go and do our Bible Institute. And I say this the same thing to you. As you get older in the Lord and you'll grow, things will make more sense to you. Um, my goal in life uh, for you is to uh, everything that I have learned and taken and, and did all the work on um, to make it easier for you. I, I know that sounds like it's a, it's a, you know, you should pay the price just like I did. But, you know, that's not really what it's about. The Bible's not a book to see how hard we can make it for you. Um, my goal for you is to learn the Bible and you then break it down for somebody else. We don't have a lot of time left. I don't have a lot of time left. Making the Bible complicated just so I can hold it over your head, what you don't know, is not going to benefit anybody. And uh, my job is to take the complicated things and, and break them down where they're really understandable for you. And, you know, so like the old drill sergeant told me many, many years ago, you stay with it, and, and in time, things will begin to develop themselves, and you'll understand it all. You'll understand how the pieces go together. You're all involved in ministry. You're all doing what you need to be doing. You're getting the Bible. I, I try to, you know, 
Christian life is, <laughs> is just think, of, I only got two hands, but think I had five, six hands up here like this, okay? And each one of these represents a different aspect. And in your Christian life, it's easy to get one ahead of the other, you know what I'm saying? That you learn this, but you don't get this quite as good. Well, my job is to try to keep, think of all six hands now, all keep hands not getting too far ahead of each other. Everybody just keeps along with what you're learning and balances it out. And, you know, my goal right now is to really help you understand and put together your Bible. If we can get that done, you're going to see it's a lot easier to do, uh, the, put the other stuff to it. You've got to have a frame of reference. You've got to have a baseline. And the baseline for us is going to be understanding how the Bible goes together. Once you get that down, then everything else pretty much can fall into line. I'm not saying you won't have to work on some things, but I am saying it'll, it'll be easier for you because, you know, it's a, it's a, you're getting the system down. And what I have done, as you are aware of, I've taken the Bible, which by itself is a very intimidating and complicated book, as it appears. But what I've done is I've broken it down into the 17 sections. If you can learn these 17 sections, and my goal is for you that every time we have a month in between, uh, we're going to enter into section 7 today. We've, we've, we've done 6. We've got 10 to go. I, I, you know, when I did Institute years and years ago, and some of you were with me back then, you know that I gave, gave really tough tests back then, you know, to see what, and I saw the, that there was really no value in that. I mean, anybody can cram for a test and, you know, do, get the material down that I'm going to ask. The real passing, the real test for you will be, what do you do with what this, what you get it, see? That's the real test. Everything else doesn't matter. It's just a waste of time. And I know, as well as I'm standing up here, or really sitting up here, that not everybody's going to do it. But enough will do it, and it'll be a thing that it'll, it'll make the difference. So my, my goal for you is to have these things completely down and in your Bible after every, before you come back next time. And, and, and what you're doing, and, and put it in your notebook, get it le- charted out, get it laid out, and have a working understanding one piece at a time. And it's like I'm throwing all this on you at one time. We're going through maybe one, maybe two sections at a time. Clearly enough for you to go back and digest all the material and, and put it together to get it where you want it to be. So, you know, that's my goal, and that's what we're going to try to do. And so far, you know, we come through section one, you remember, was really Genesis 1, 1 to 1, 2, a, 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 an incredible a part of your Bible that really sets the foundation for everything else in the Bible. And then I showed you after you got through that, we went into Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in the second section, and that was the rebuilding of God's heavens, what he did then to reestablish everything that had been in chaos. And then the third section was another very important section, and that is, you know, Adam and Eve and God's commission to them. And uh, they were a very key uh, piece of the Bible. The next one, the fourth one, was uh, another invaluable one, and that is the flood of Noah, Genesis chapter uh, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, and how all that is important. And I showed you about these four. These four really, even though they're not, as you would read them, directly connected, you need to know that these first four are the prerequisite for God. Uh, what he's doing uh, to accomplish the overall goal in the Old Testament, and that's to bring out the nation of Israel. You need to understand that. 
they're, as you would read them individually or together, you know, it's a, it's a complete, you don't see any connection there. <clears throat> but as you go through the Bible, you see that is part of the process that God is doing and how he's trying to do that. Because what happens then in Genesis chapter 10 <clears throat> is we see, you know, after God got everything where he's at, now we see the, uh, the, form, the calling out of Abraham. And, uh, you know, Abraham begins the uh, formulation of the nation of Israel. And you remember, and you got to have these down by now, <clears throat> I told you that there's five aspects in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel. And that is the formulation, that is the calling out, that is the establishment, then we see the demise, and then we see the captivity. <clears throat> and uh, when a captivity takes place, which we'll get to at some point here, that captivity lasts all the way up to the time period that we're living in right now. And we'll, we'll get into that in a, in, a, in a deeper way. And then <clears throat> we looked at the sixth thing, and that, this is where we were last week, and that is God taking them down into Egypt. And this will be Genesis chapter 37 and bringing us up to the end of Genesis, which is chapter 50. And uh, we, saw, <clears throat> we saw the great principle here of God's hand moving through the circumstances of life. This is a really good practical lesson out of here, this last one. And that is, the, you know, if, if we would be in Joseph's situation, and we would see him being sold into slavery, see him going through all that he went through, seeing, the, the, you know, all the issues that he had to deal with, and then being faced with his brothers again and have to go through that. If we would look at that just from a, a purely secular uh, issues of life, you know, we would catalog that with all the other disasters that we see in people's lives. The key thing of looking past that is understanding that for you and for me, uh, the issues in life that we face will always be in the hand of God to accomplish some greater purpose. And, you know, many times we cause those situations ourselves. I understand that. But even in that, if we're, if we're tender and yielding to God, God can take those things and, and, and bring about what he wants. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing, and this is what I want to get across to you. I want you to look beyond the books, beyond the chapters, beyond the verses. I want you to go behind the curtain. I want you to see what God is doing and how he's laying it out for you and for me within the scriptures. <clears throat> the Bible will not mean anything to you if you don't see this. And my goal is to help you get to that point where <clears throat> you, you do that. Now, today we're going to start in chapter 7, and uh, chapter 7 will bring us up to the book of Exodus. <clears throat> now, the book of Exodus... Will, uh, will bring us up to um, the, when I gave you the five things here, it'll bring us up to the, the second one. The first one was the formulation, which we saw all through Genesis. Now in Exodus, we see the calling out. And not, not just Exodus, but also uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These four books all cover the exact same time period. 
they cover the 40 years of the of coming coming out of Egypt and then the, the ensuing 40 years <clears throat> that they have to wander before they get into the land. <clears throat> These four books are uh, are very important because uh, they begin to form for us the historical aspect of the nation of Israel of, of why God is calling them out. Each one of these books, these four books, will will have a will have a different aspect to it. <clears throat> Most people never see this. In the Old Testament, you have Genesis, which is the book of the beginnings, where God historically lays down the formulation of the nation of Israel. Then you have four books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that all cover the same period of time from a historical standpoint. When you get into the New Testament, you have the exact same thing, except it's in reverse. In the New Testament, you have four um, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which again cover the same time period, but then you have the key book that puts it all together historically, the book of Acts, is after them. In the Old Testament, the historical book that puts it all together is before, and then you have four historical books. In the New Testament, you have the first four historical books, and then the book that puts it all together. That is a major thing to know and understand in your Bible, <coughs> and to see that. I've told you before that <coughs> each one of the Gospels portrays the first coming of Christ in a different way. Matthew portrays him as the king of the Jews. Mark portrays him as a servant. Luke portrays him as the son of man. John portrays him as the son of God. Okay. When you come back to the four books after Genesis, of uh, the calling out of Israel, each one of these books will give you a different picture of the nation of Israel. And this is very, very important. And uh, you want to get these four titles up by each one of these books. I'd put it right after the name where the book starts. First of all, we have Exodus. And Exodus will be the calling out. Exodus means to exit. The exit signs we have over the doors here that are required by the state, that simply means Exodus. You're going to exit. They exit. They exit Egypt. The next book, now it deals with the exact same time period, but it puts a different slant on, <clears throat> on, the, on the nation of Israel. And in Leviticus, we, we see the defining of the priesthood and all of the aspects of the tabernacle, the feasts, and all of those things. Leviticus, you've heard it many, many times, the Levitical priesthood. Leviticus from Levi, uh, Levi um, it deals with the priesthood. Then we have the, the next book, which is Numbers, and Numbers means exactly what it means, Numbers. And here... Uh, now, keep in mind, all these books are taking place at the same time period, just like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Numbers is the book where when they get, before they get into the land, when they're out there you know, wandering in it, they're being numbered for war. They're taking a number count of how many combat efficient, ready uh, males they have. So you have the book of Numbers, and they're numbered for war. Uh, also, you'll find in the book of Numbers where um, you find their unbelief and they begin to turn from God. And then the fourth book would be the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy comes from the word deutero, or it means two, like a duet, two people. And Deuteronomy deals with the aspect that God had to give them the law the second time, duo, 
Deuteronomy, second giving of the law is what it means. <clears throat> and what we see in these four books is the a better understanding of where God is at with Israel. And uh, each one of these books is an incredible book into itself that really lays out and gives great detail into exactly what is going on with Israel and what God is requiring of them. In Exodus, you see, um, you know, all of the first things that God does with them, the, the foundational stuff. Leviticus is the religious stuff. Uh, the book of Numbers is the physical stuff. They've got to go to war. They've got to fight these nations. The concept is the kingdom of heaven. Literal nations, literal warfare. And then Deuteronomy, after we see in, Levit- in Numbers how that they disobeyed God and they departed from him, what they didn't do is they're getting ready to go over in the land, you know, uh, and, uh, and, and, and Deuteronomy at the end. But what happens before that is that they failed to give a legacy to their children of the things that God has given them. So one of the reasons that they wander for 40 years is for that generation to come out of Egypt to die off. God gives them the second giving of the law to the young generation that didn't have it, and then they're the ones that go over. Obviously, you can see a hand, the hand of God in that. The first generation didn't get to go in. The second generation did because your first birth is a picture of your physical birth, and the second generation is a picture of your new birth, and they go in and get the blessing. That's the kind of stuff you want to look for. The calling out of the nation of Israel is, <clears throat> is without a doubt, uh, one of the greatest things that you find. And uh, there's a number of things that you want to remember with it. Uh, remember now, they have been down in Egypt for 400 years, Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. And uh, they have been down there for uh, 400, four generations, 400 years. And they have been under severe bondage. Uh, 400 years... Um, the devil, obviously, his plan, and here's another great principle. The devil wanted to go down in Egypt under Pharaoh. The Bible says in, uh, um, uh, in Exodus chapter you know, 1, verse 8, when they all go down at the end of Genesis, everything is fine, everything is great. You know, they're back down there in Egypt. Uh, they're all together again. But then in verse 8 of Exodus chapter 1, it says, Now there arose a new king in, over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. Now we begin to see the devil do what the devil does best. He tries to take every situation that God does and destroy it. That's another great principle you want to learn. Uh, The devil will try to take everything that God does for you or wants to do for you and turn it around to destroy it. And we let him do that simply because of the fact that we don't understand the great principle of greater is he that's in you that's in the world. And there's nothing that the devil can do to destroy anything that God wants to do in your life unless you allow him to. You know, we want to put all the blame on the devil, the people, the circumstances of life and all that thing. The truth of the matter is the only one that can destroy anything that God has for you is you. Nobody else. And we don't like that. We like to sidestep that and like to blame our problems on everybody else. But whatever issues we have today, they're your issues. And there's always a principle and a way in the Bible to sidestep those things and stay with God where you want to be. We simply choose not to. So that's a great thing there in verse 8 because it shows us that God had a plan for Israel. We have seen the formulation of it. Now we look at Israel down in Egypt and we see it from two perspectives. 
God wants to forge them into a mighty nation, and he knows that adversity is the way to do that. The devil sees them in his backyard, and he wants to destroy them because he knows God's plan, and he knows that he wants to break their back under the world system of Egypt. So he puts them under hard bondage and treats them terribly. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where um, it's, a, it's just the way the system works. You take that into your life and put it into your own world and realize that that's exactly what he wants to do for you. He wants to break your back under the world system that you will never fulfill as an individual what God wants you to do, just as Israel, he wanted them to fail in being the mission that God gave them to do. So we see that it's a, you know, the parallels are, are there. Exodus is an incredible book. And uh, Exodus is a book that really, um, it shows us exactly, you know, where we're at uh, by not only Israel exiting the Egypt, which is a type of the world, but it shows you and me how that we, uh, we, uh, we exit the world at the time of salvation. I, I want to give you an outline of Exodus. I think the outline of Exodus is absolutely paramount. And I want you to get this down, and I want you to get it in your Bible. I would suggest you put it at the first page of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1. I have mine down in the corner. Um, and uh, you don't have to make it a lengthy thing, condense it down. But uh, every book of the Bible has an outline to it that is a natural God-given outline. And the key to beginning to learn the Bible, and we'll get into these down the line. I'll give you some of them as we go through it. But the key to that is for you to get those natural outlines down. And uh, you can buy any book in any bookstore or off the website with a guy who comes up with his own outlines. I'm just telling you, the best outline that you can ever get is, is the one that God has for him. God did exactly what he wanted to do the way he wanted to do it, follow his outline. So this is all a picture of you and me as God is dealing with Israel in the book of Exodus. And I keep in mind, they're exiting the world after being in bondage for 400 years. When you got saved, you exited the world after being in bondage for X amount of years. So in Exodus chapter 1, 2, and 3, Exodus chapter 1, 2, and 3, you'll find Israel under the hard bondage of Egypt, which is a picture of you and me as an unsafe person under the rigors and everything that we're going through. And if you went through there, you would see and you would find out that um, Egypt was no friend to God's people. And the great lesson there is whether you believe it or not or what you think about it, the world will be no friend to you. It will not. It will wind up making you its slave. And then after you're its slave, it won't treat you nice because you're a slave. It'll treat you even worse. You know, it's a, it's a thing where uh, it, it's exactly what it, what it is. People who are abusive people, husbands that are abusive to their wives, parents that are abusive to their kids, um, they don't get better, they get worse. And, uh, you know, I've seen girls marry a guy who didn't treat them right, you know, thinking that after they got married they would all be better. It doesn't work that way. Exodus shows you that once the world makes a slave of you, it doesn't treat you fine to keep you, it tries to kill you every day of your life to break you and keep you in that bondage. And uh, so chapter 1, 2, and 3 is a picture of that. And in chapter, uh, picking up in chapter 3, uh, and then chapter 4, 5, and 6, 
we find uh, in chapter 2, verse 20, that God brings them a deliverer. And that deliverer is Moses. And the Bible says that they cried out to God, and God then sent them a man who was going to be able to deliver them for the bondage of Egypt. Now, Moses is one of the great types of Christ in the Bible. And we see through Moses, we see through Moses delivering them out of Egypt uh, and their bondage after they cried out is a picture of you and me uh, stuck in this world, crying out, being tired of it, and then God sending us a deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. The moment that happens, in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, you find that the, uh, in particular, you'll see it in 826, you'll find the adversary shows up. And that is the contest between Moses and Pharaoh over letting the children of Israel go. And this is a picture of the controversy that many people go through uh, when they're confronted with the deliverer that the battle that ensues in their life because the devil wants to keep them under bondage, God wants to set them free through a deliverer, and the battle ensues over their soul. And Pharaoh does not want to let him go. Moses keeps going before him saying, let my people go. And of course, uh, they don't. So what happens then is by the time you get to chapter 12, <coughs> Pharaoh agrees to let them go. And uh, we'll look at this here in a moment. But in Exodus chapter 12, you have the, a picture of the salvation of the nation of Israel being delivered out of Egypt by the blood of a lamb. You heard me talk about Thursday night uh, years and years ago. The first message I ever heard Dr. Ruckman preach was the gospel according to Exodus. It was based on Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 is a picture of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ put in an Old Testament format through Israel, God's son, being delivered from Egypt, a type of the world, by the blood of a lamb. And what a great picture that is. And then what follows here, historically with the nation of Israel, is a, is a series of protocols, a series of things that God puts in their world that they have to have to be successful with the mission that God gives them. And by a strange stroke of the Holy Spirit of God, this follows exactly the same things that you and I need to put in our lives once we get to Exodus chapter 12 and we get delivered. You're going to fight all through this up to Exodus chapter 12 and then the day you got saved by the blood of the Lamb. Here is the order of events that has to take place in a Christian's life, found in an Old Testament book uh, that deals with the calling out of Egypt. And I, I just can't, with good conscience, teach you about the calling out of Egypt without showing you how it is a picture of the calling out of you. Well, after they get saved by the blood in chapter 12, in chapter 13, he talks about and gives them the, the order of their sanctification. They're to be a separate people. And once you get saved, the first thing that you need to understand is you're no longer of this world, in this world. You need to be separate now. I think this is one of the key missing elements that Christianity, and the reason why Christianity uh, has a tough time telling people to be separate from the world once they get saved is because we've come to the point where Christianity has not separated itself from the world. You can't tell the difference anymore. 
The music's the same. The Bible's the same. It's, it's an entertainment, you know, venue. Uh, it's like going to a concert. You know, everything has lost the specialness that once set it apart. And so he, he drives that home in chapter 13 that they have to be separate people. Then in chapter 14, this is where you find their baptism. And it illustrates for us that after you get saved and you understand that you're no longer part of this world, then you need to get baptized. Uh, if you're saved and you've not been scripturally baptized you, by the, in a Bible way, you need to be baptized. Now, I don't, I don't mince any words about it. I teach that, that the, and again, we've, we live in a world that is so unexact today and nobody really follows anything that is the rules uh, of the Bible, uh, and everybody thinks that, well, I was saved and I was baptized in this church or that church, therefore I'm baptized. Let me tell you something. The exactness of the scriptures is paramount. If you have a biblical New Testament scriptural baptism, it has to be in a scriptural Bible-believing church. It cannot be in a church that does not believe the Word of God. It cannot be in a church that believes in speaking in tongues. It can't be by a church that is not what the Bible would define as a New Testament local church. You may have gotten wet in those churches, but you didn't get baptized scripturally. The only church that has the authority to baptize you, you got to know this. And I know this is not popular today. I know it's not. Because everybody wants to get along and everybody wants to think that their church is just fine and great and that we're all churches because we all, you know, believe God and all this stuff. And that's just simply not true. There is a clear distinction of what God requires a New Testament local church to be. Like it or not like it. And submitting yourself to be baptized in a church that does not fall into that category is not a biblical baptism. You just got wet. You may have 100,000 baptismal certificates, but at the end of the day, the only baptism that God is going to count, in water baptism anyhow, is one that was done through the church that was given the, the ordinance to do it. And that has to be a Bible-based, scriptural, New Testament, local church based on Acts chapter 12 and Acts chapter 11. And that's just the way that it is. And I say it again, that is totally unpopular today. And everybody just gasps when you talk about that. And my answer to that is, I can't help it, you're stupid. I cannot help it, you're ignorant of what the Bible says. I'm just an old guy sitting up here that just believes what I read. And that's what it says. You may not like it, I may not like it, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I guess in time, you get a little more Bible under your belt. You can write your own Bible, and you can put it in everybody else's, and you can put in whatever you want. I'm going to stick with the one that God gave me. And it clearly defines what baptism is, what it should be, and who gets to administer it and who doesn't. So in chapter 14, you see baptism. In, chapters, uh, in chapter 15, <clears throat> this is where you find the Song of Moses. This will be in reference to the new song that God puts in your heart because you are saved. Everything changes. And I've always taken this to, um, and this is not popular either, I've always taken this one that when God gives you a new song, you got to let the old world song go out of your life. I mean, uh, that's just that simple. Uh, listening to the devil's music when you've got God, should have God's song in your heart, 
is not a good, not a good thing. And I got to say this, again, I'm sorry, most of Christian music today is nothing more than the devil's music just repackaged like the Bibles are repackaged for God's Word. And um, if you want a good example of what biblical music is versus what non-biblical music is, just look in the hymnals we have. Every one of those songs that are written in, there's over 500 of them. And you can go get four or five more hymnals that have different songs in them to the tune of four or 500. Every one of them, if you look at the date they were written, were written during the Philadelphian church age. So they have doctrine in them. The new songs that guys sing today are love songs. That's why everybody likes them. They're love songs. You close your eyes and, and you could think you were in a bar someplace and it was, you know, um, you know, ladies free night or something. I mean, it's a... It's a thing where it's just, you cannot mistake when you get into those books. You cannot mistake. They're dripping, loaded with doctrine. Whoever wrote them knew the Bible. And that's why they're written during that great period of time. Everything that comes out, you know, after probably 1950, and there's still some good stuff, but uh, it, it begins to wade to the point where today uh, you have Christian rock groups, you have, you know, all the all the Christian groups that just mirror the world groups, and all they wanted to do was maintain their worldly music, so they put a Christian label on it. They got a new song in the chapter 15. Chapter 16, <clears throat> and again, this is all what God is giving to Israel, and it just forms a great, uh, for their exodus. And, it form, and I just can't, in good conscience, just blow by this without giving it to you, because you're all in, in your exodus too. Chapter 16 is the greatest chapter, I think, in the Bible in showing you the, uh, the relationship now you should have once you get out of Egypt with the Word of God uh, through the manna. And I don't have time to go all into it today, but that chapter is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible that shows you uh, that God, uh, they're in the wilderness of sin. Nothing is sustaining them. There's no food, there's no water, there's no nothing. And it's a picture of you and me being in the wilderness of this world. And what happens is God has to supernaturally bring down sustaining food for them. And that is a picture of the Word of God that God has given you, the supernatural gift of God that you hold uh, on the table in front of you today. That, that is everything that you, know, you need to get through the wilderness of sin in your journey. So uh, there's just so many things in that. <laughs> In chapter 17, you begin to see a great picture of our prayer life. And this will be there with uh, 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 Joshua and fighting Amalek, Moses up on the hill or on the mountain, uh, Aaron and Hur, uh, you know, with him when he uh, lifts up his uh, hands and he's praying. Uh, Joshua wins when he gets tired and his hands begin to fall. Amalek wins. And so, uh, you know, uh, Aaron and her come up and they help him hold his arms up and the battery, the battles of victory for, for the nation of Israel. And that's a picture of, of, of our prayer life. And, of course, you'll notice that Moses is a type of Christ. He's on a mountain like Christ interceding for us. And uh, he's praying. And uh, when he's praying, the victory goes toward uh, God when he doesn't pray then it goes toward the devil. When he gets tired in his praying, he gets some friends on the phone and they pray with him and help hold his hands up. This is what the Bible says over there uh, in, when Paul's talking to Timothy when he says, I wish men everywhere would pray lifting up holy hands. 
And of course, the dumb, stupid, charismatic who knows nothing about the Bible thinks that that means that he goes to church and he holds his hands up and that's what the verse is talking about. First of all, and I hate this to tell this, and I know this is a terrible thing to, to hit you with so early on a Saturday morning, there ain't nothing holy about these hands. This is your flesh. You can hold them up all day long. Don't do it in the bank. But you can hold them up all day long. And there's nothing ever going to be holy about them. Romans says, in your flesh is no good thing. <clears throat> Why somebody can't see that is only explained because they don't use the Bible as the final authority. The holy hands that he's talking about in Timothy there is the picture of a man's prayer life that is defined for you back in, in Exodus chapter 17. This is what I try to tell you all the time. As you learn the Bible, <clears throat> and I know we're in the beginning stages of it, but you ought to be putting all this stuff in there anyhow and just getting a head start on it. But when you, when you learn your Bible, you'll learn to put these pieces together and to see how that everything that he says in the New Testament, you can go back, find an example of it in the Old Testament that will line up with it and explain it for you, just like the holy hands. I mean, the charismatic things that these hands, when a Bible believer goes back and he sees <coughs> Exodus for what it is, the Exodus out of the world, what a picture of that is, then he sees that that is not what it is, that it's a picture of somebody's prayer life. Chapter 18. <coughs> you begin to see the aspect of the ministry uh, and dealing with people. And this is a great, uh, this is a great chapter. In chapter 19 through chapter 24, he lays out the law to them, and he gives them the law. And, of course, we find that Exodus chapter 20 is where to get the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 25 through chapter 27, we see the great chapters on the tabernacle. And, oh, what a great parallels those are we can get into. In chapter 28 to chapter 31, we focus now on the priesthood and what great parallels we have there. There's two priesthoods in the Bible, and you need to know that, and in time you'll be able to spot them pretty quickly. They're defined for you in the book of Hebrews, which I told you the other night, Thursday night, Hebrews defines what stuff in the Old Testament was good, but the stuff in the New Testament was better. And when you get into, when you get into <coughs> Exodus, you'll find that uh, there is a uh, Levitical priesthood, which is a uh, human priesthood that comes through the genealogy of a man having sons and those sons becoming the priest after he passed off. It's all in a physical sense. But we're dealing with the kingdom of heaven. The second priesthood is defined for you in the book of Hebrews as Christ's priesthood. And the example down in the Bible is Melchizedek. And Melchizedek's <coughs> priesthood, uh, the Bible says, is without beginning, without ending. There's no descendant to it. It's the eternal priesthood of Christ. And Melchizedek is a type of Christ in the Bible. A lot of guys are so, you know, think that he is the Old Testament appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. And all that proves is you don't know very much about your Bible, but that's another story. He's not Christ, uh, but he's a type of Christ. And uh, the fact that you think it's Christ simply means that you failed sixth grade English and can't read the Bible because it would tell you if you read it. But that's beside the point. So we see that there are two priesthoods in the Bible, and they're, they mirror each other, but they're different. The Old Testament priesthood was what we call the Levitical priesthood through Aaron. It was a physical line of descendants. The spiritual priesthood is based on Christ 
being our high priest and you being born into the kingdom of God and being part of a spiritual priesthood. Catholic Church teaches that you got to go to seminary and be confirmed and go to all these things and then you get ordained as a priest uh, and then you're a priest uh, of the Roman Catholic Church and you're a priest. Bible teaches that every man and woman in this room and across Christianity that's truly born again, you're already a priest. You're a priest after the eternal priesthood of Melchizedek. The guy dressed up in a clown suit in the Roman Catholic Church is no more a priest than my buddy and Daisy is. Uh, it's a thing where uh, it's understanding those two priesthoods. Then chapter 32 through chapter 40, we see the work in the ministry. We see them actually doing what needed to be done. And what it shows you is that God gave these things, the calling out of Israel, uh, to get them to the work. And what it ultimately shows you and me is that God saved you and me, brought us out of Egypt for the work. And so it's a very concise book that really does what it needs to do. The other books, and I always looked at Exodus like Matthew. Matthew is the book in the New Testament that really puts it all together for you. Exodus is the first historical book after Genesis that really puts it all together for you. And uh, when we get over to uh, Matthew, we're going to see that uh, our number 11 on our list will be the first coming of Christ. And Matthew puts together uh, for you the first coming of Christ, where Exodus put together for you the coming out of the nation of Israel. So, Look over at Exodus chapter 12 here. <clears throat> and there's a lot in here, but we're, I just want to deal with it. One of the things that happens here that you need to know about is 12.1, he says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. One of the major things, you know, when the Bible says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. All things become new. Emphasize all things become new. When they come out of Egypt, everything became new. And what you have here in this particular chapter is the fact that God now changes the beginning of when they start their year. And this is monumental in the Bible. It's monumental a couple of ways because, first of all, it's a picture completely of you being a new creature in Christ Jesus. Everything is new about you. God couldn't keep that principle in play if he'd have brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and just left their beginning of the year what it already was. He wants it to be a complete rebirth of who they are in every way, shape, or form. And when you get saved, God wants it to be a complete by a new birth in everything that you do and everything that you are. Now, up to this point, up to this point, the Jews were keeping 
as the beginning of their year, the Feast of Tabernacles. This has been erroneously done away with in the Jewish faith today, and now it's called Yom Kippur, and, uh, <clears throat> which is not in the Bible anywhere, shape, or form. But it's the same time period. Uh, the Jew was, up to this point, beginning their year based on the Feast of Tabernacles, and that would be in September. And <clears throat> they're doing that based on that, going back to Genesis, the original creation at the beginning of the earth took place in September. And uh, it took place in those four days there, or those three days there, uh, that, uh, that follow the beginning of the creation there in Genesis 1, where the earth is four days off uh, because, you know, God made the earth and then he put the sun four days later. So it's, it's off those four days is the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, you'll find this in Leviticus chapter uh, 24. It's a little more detailed to it. So what he does is he, he up to this point, he counts the beginning of their year from September, which is commonly called the Feast of Tabernacles. After this point, the Passover becomes the beginning of their year. And it now points toward the Lord Jesus Christ as uh, the blood of the Lamb that is going to be their deliverance. So here again, you can't miss the hand of God putting all this together to illustrate how important Christ is going to be when he shows up. And, you know, it's, a, it's an incredible thing. The old idea that the Jew, and we talked about this Thursday night, the old idea that the Jew was looking for the cross and looking for a Savior, um, you know, it pretty much goes out the window when you start to get into your Bible. Every Jew knew the story of Exodus chapter 12, and he knew that uh, they got delivered by a lamb. If they were making that association to Christ, when John the Baptist showed up and said about Christ, Behold, the Lamb of God was taken away to sin of the world, they'd have got it. They weren't looking for a Savior. They were looking for a king. They couldn't understand why they were looking for a king, and God sent them a, a, you know, a, a Savior. They couldn't get it. They're looking for somebody to come in because everything in the Bible doesn't point to the cross. Everything in the Bible points to the second coming with him coming as a conquering king. And that's what they were looking for. And when they didn't get it, they couldn't figure it out. So you find that in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 1, then what he does is he, he begins the beginning of their year now. It's no longer going to be September. Now it's going to be April, the Passover. And of course, uh, this is this is this is a picture of there being a new creature in Christ Jesus, and old things being passed away. And he, if you would go down through here, you'll find that the uh, everything about this lamb uh, is a foreshadowing of Christ. It's a male. First things out of the flock. You keep it to the fourteenth day of the month. That's when Christ was crucified. Everything fits right down the line. So we see that. Uh, after 400 years into captivity, we now see that um, they, they get called out. And when they get called out, they're called out to go to a place that um, they have to trust God by faith uh, to get to. And God had a promised land for them. 
we use that term all the time, but we don't ever really understand its significance of, of that title. The promised land was a land that they had that God gave them, but for them to keep that land and stay in that land, they had to keep the promises of God. In other words, it wasn't just given them unconditionally. It was given to them with promises that they had to keep. The promised land in most of God's people's minds is always looked at as going to heaven. And of course, that's, about as, that's, you know, that's pretty lame as far as what it means. It doesn't mean that. It means the same thing for you and for me. That you're going through your wilderness journey in maturing in your Christian life to get to the promised land. The promised land, simply for you and for me, is the place that we get to in our life where we still have the giants, we still have the enemies, we still have the battles, we still have the conflicts, but we stay in the victory lane based on the promises that God has given us. Keep the promises, you're good. Forsake the promises, you're in trouble. And it's the same thing. It's a parallel between the two. And uh, that's why that, uh, you know, I've said many, many times, not all the Bible is written directly to you, but it's all written for you. And there'll be things in, in the Old Testament with Israel because of the parallels of Israel being God's son as a nation, you being God's son as an individual, that the parallels from a nation to an individual will match and they'll fit. Like I gave you the outline of Exodus. It all fits for you. But it wasn't directly written to you. And you try to take the book of Exodus or many things in the Bible and put a direct reference to you, you're going to wind up in hell. I mean, it's just that simple. Or screwed up in your doctrine. So, number seven is the calling out of Israel. And uh, that is based on what God gave Abraham back there in Genesis. And uh, that is a section that you probably can better understand now. And that section runs four books. Just remember that. And I'm trying to show you how the books in your Bible, so we can get it all together, the books in your Bible correspond correspond to uh, everything that, that uh, is, is going on. The major thing about the Old Testament that you want to remember, the majority of it is nothing more than a historical account of God bringing Israel through these five stages. You want to remember that. We get messed up in looking at all the other things, and we've and we, we, we got to fundamentally, to understand your Bible, understand its historical value of what God is doing first. Then you can add the other stuff in. But that you have to know why God is doing what he's doing the way he's doing it historically. Because the Bible is a history book. It's a history of the nation of Israel on one side. It's a history of the New Testament church on the other side. But it's a history book. And uh, it's a history book like, unlike any other history book. Because you don't find anything about what you go to school, all the other things that they give you in history, you don't find in the Bible. You know why? Because God didn't care about that. God's history is focused on two things, Israel and the church. He didn't care about Alexander the Great. He didn't care about the Battle of Philippi. He didn't care about Troy. He didn't care about this. He didn't care about the Carthaginians. He didn't care about any of that. All the world is focused on that kind of history. God is focused on what is real history. That's another thing you've got to come to in time. You've got to get yourself to the point where you realize that when you view everything in life as in history... The world's going to have its opinion of it, and God's going to have its opinion of it. 
when you go to school, you get world history. World history will be a conglomeration of everything that went on in history, and you'll never hear one thing, one thing about the nation of Israel and God and the Jews. When God looks at it, he puts the emphasis on everything with the Jews and the God and the nation of Israel. He'll not tell you one thing about everything else. You have got to see that. And you've got to get past, and it's tough because we're all human beings and we have a tendency to, to follow that. You have got to get past the point where you look at those things from that standpoint. Now, once you get that done with history, you've got to learn to carry that right on into everything else in life. Your friends, the people you hang out with, circumstances of life, everything that goes along with it, you now have to look at and see it not from your standpoint or the world's standpoint, but from God's standpoint. It's part of the growing process of being a coming a Christian. Unfortunately, most of God's people never get there. They just can't break out of the number one problem in their life that keeps them from being what God wants them to be, and that's themselves. And they just let them hold, they just stay in that mindset all of their life, and it's a tragedy. But it's the way it is. All right, let's look at number eight now. Number eight will be, uh, as we came down through our list of five, it'll be the third thing, and that will be the establishment of the nation of Israel. We've seen them come through the formulation. They're down in Egypt. We see them being called out in Exodus. They wander for 40 years, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then we come to the next book, which begins the establishment, and that would be Joshua. Now, the establishment of the nation of Israel will take you up Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel. It'll also go into 1st and 2nd Kings, but you're going to see that it begins to break apart. And by the time you get to 1st and 2nd Chronicles, after the life of David and Solomon, then the kingdom gets split, and what you have in Chronicles... Uh, is and Second Kings is pretty much the residue as the kings which are worthless, and we're on our way into a into a downward slide. But the book of Joshua, here again, the book of Joshua uh, is the book that God gives us right when they're beginning to cross over, and uh, they've now wandered for forty years. All the first generation is dead. Um, the second generation has got the word of God again. And now uh, Joshua uh, and Moses uh, begin to take uh, them over the crossing that goes into, uh, brings them into the promised land. And I want you to know, again, this is how the devil works. While they're down in Egypt for 400 years, and that's a long time, the devil is busy restocking the land that God promised to Abraham with all of his crew uh, to keep them out. The devil knows that they're going to come into that land that God is going to bring them out. He, he can read his Bible. He knows exactly what's going to happen. So for that 400 years, he wastes no time 
in uh, bringing back down the sons of God at some point, producing another race of giants, and then filling them into the land down there where the land that God has given to Israel is filled with the most imposing people that you could ever want to come up against. And he did this because of the fact that he's going to, uh, uh, he's going to, he's going to come in and he's going to keep them out because we obviously know that he, he wants that land for himself. And it's uh, uh, during this time period, uh, if Joshua, they fight three basic major military campaigns and they engage more than 30 different armies during this time period. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's an incredible deal. And the book of Joshua covers about a 26-year uh, span. And uh, one of the key things here is that, and is over in Acts chapter 7, verse 45, where they're talking about Joshua and the battle. In Acts chapter 7, verse 45, the Holy Spirit of God replaced the word Joshua with the name Jesus. And every Bible scholar on the country today, every pastor that you would listen to would tell you that that's a mistranslation in your King James Bible. And usually, just for a rule of thumb, most so-called gross mistranslations in the Bible are usually the greatest key to unlocking something in the Bible. But these guys are too idiotic to be able to see that. The word Joshua means Jesus in your Bible. So when you're coming back to the book of Joshua, what you're reading then is Joshua is a type of Christ. He's one of the 21 types. Fighting the battles and showing you the way to get through the battles. And uh, it's a great picture. It's a great picture. And the uh, book of Joshua is a book that they go in and literally fight the war to rid the enemy of the promised land. And it's a battle and shows in a practical sense that once you get saved, there's some things that's got to go in your life. There's just some things that's got to go. And if they don't go, those things will always linger in your life and will cause you problems that may be the ultimate demise for you, spiritually speaking. And uh, throughout the book of Joshua, uh, it's a picture of getting ready to do the ministry. And there's a number of little three-point things that come through the Bible that I, I've cataloged throughout. I've got quite a few of them. And they're great little, if you have to do a devotion, you know, they're great little devotion things. And, you know, in a devotion, you know, many times most guys for the ball team and and for volleyball, whatever, they, I don't think they understand what a devotion is. Uh, they think it's a three-point outline with a sermon with a, with, you know, and go for 40 minutes. If you take longer than 10 minutes, 15 minutes at the max for your devotion, you're way overboard with it. You need to get in, say what you've got to say, and get out. Most people make the mistake of thinking that they've got a captive audience, therefore I'm going to preach a sermon to them. All you're going to do is they're going to turn you off after about the first five minutes and then people looking at their watch wondering when they're going to get out. And uh, it's something that young Christians do that they don't have the maturity to understand. 
that when you get it, do a devotion, you get in, stab them, and get out. Uh, you don't make it a Sunday morning church service. But that's what most people do. And it, you know, it goes on and on and on. I've sat in some of them where I thought, and I, you know, and I'm a pastor and I love the Bible. And I'm thinking, is this thing ever going to have an end to it? <laughs> I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on, you know. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, might as well take up an offering and just give an invitation here. <laughs> this is stupid. And I watch the people, you know, and I watch them and they try to be respectful, you know, but they're. And then they, you know, their kids get antsy and they're going over here, you know, and, and the, the guy is oblivious. He just. Oh, and I'm thinking of a Reuben sandwich over at Jason's Deli and not thinking about anything you're saying. You're way past your time limit. Your nickel meter has run out. But things like this. When I give a devotion, and maybe this is why nobody asks me to anymore. But when I give a devotion, I'm in and out. Five, ten minutes. I would rather stick you with something quickly that you'll remember than to labor on for 40 minutes, 30 minutes, and have you remember nothing. And, you know, when it comes to Joshua, one of my favorite little things about ministry is, is the ministry has to be three things for it to work. Uh, and it's taught throughout this book. And this is a great little example of, of what a devotion should be. Uh, the first thing is that in ministry you have to be faithful. So you talk about that for a few minutes. Second thing is in ministry you have to be fearless. Then you talk about that. The, chapter 1 talks about courage three or four, five different times. And then the ministry, to be the ministry, you not only have to be faithful and fearless, but you have to be fervent. You have to stay with it. And those three things are resounding three principles that come through this whole book. Israel has to be faithful, they have to be fearless, they have to be fervent. And they're up against some 30 nations, 30 armies, with some giants out there that make them look like, by their own word, grasshoppers. So it's a thing where, you know, it's little things like that that make powerful, pointed points that you don't lose everybody in the process of trying to show how much Bible you know. You know, you get in, you do the damage, and you get out. And uh, that's key to uh, being good at, at communicating. And most guys are good at talking, but they're not good at communicating. There's a difference between talking and communicating. Uh, you know, uh, I know the attention span of lost people or people who really don't care about the Bible. Me trying to ignore that and think that they're going to hang on to every word I say because of who I am, pretty stupid on my part. Uh, you get in, you stick them, and you get out. And, uh, you know, and there's Bibles filled with little things like this. I'll give you another one. Uh, you, you come through here, and I got a bunch of them marked down here. You know, uh, you come through here and you, you see where he's talking about them keeping the Word of God. And, uh, and, and verse 4 says, uh, excuse me, verse 8 says, uh, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, and thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then shalt thou make thy way prosperous, and then shalt thou have good success. I would simply say from that verse that there's three things that we have to do in the Bible based on the Word of God. Deuteronomy 6.16 says, you ha uh, excuse me, 6.6 6 says, you have to have the word in your heart, 
Joshua 1.8, where we're at, says you have to have the word in your mouth. And Psalms 149, verse 6 says you have to have it in your hand. Just three little simple things that you can build on. You get in, you do it, you get out. You know, you don't need a poem. You don't need to, you know, you don't need to sing a song at the end. You just get in, do your work, and get out. So the book of Joshua begins the establishment of, uh, of the nation of Israel. And uh, it's a thing where uh, all of Joshua, from a doctrinal standpoint, will be a picture of the second coming of Christ. We know that based on Joshua and Jesus being substituted in name. Historically, it'll be a picture of Israel going in to take the land that God promised to Abraham and all the battles that they have to fight. And these are literal battles. Inspirationally, it's a picture of the battle of the believer's life that you let Joshua and Jesus do the fighting for you and you just claim the victory by staying in the book and staying in the Word. That's what you have. Now, Joshua in the book here forms a brilliant war plan. You find it in 6.1 and 8.35. And what he does is he follows a very good principle in physical warfare, because it works for him, uh, He goes into the land and he separates the northern part of the country from the southern part of the country. This is what we call in, in the Bible and military tactics, divide and conquer. Once he divides them, the north can't get to the south, the south can't get to the north. Uh, Israel holds the line in the middle. So now they're free to, uh, they just cut their enemy's strength in half. If they just would have went in for a full frontal assault, they'd have faced both north and south. The brilliancy of the plan is they just cut the enemy's strength in half. And now the uh, part, of the, part of the nation of Israel can hold the middle line while the other half goes up and fights the nations on the northern side, or vice versa. Or they can attack them both at the same time. And uh, they have completely cut them off. They completely cut off their communications. Uh, and now they can destroy them and fight them uh, on their terms uh, after they have divided them, and the term speaks for itself, divide and conquer. It's a brilliant military move and a brilliant military plan. And you see it in a spiritual sense. The devil uses it too. Uh, it's, a, it's a plan that can go both ways, where if you're going to deal, uh, you know, it's like... You see it in everything. If a police guy, detectives, have two guys that they thought robbed a bank or killed somebody or they did something together, they want to find out the truth. They want to conquer. When they question those people, they don't question them together. They put one in one room over here, one in one room over here. They divide them because they know if you divide them out, you can conquer them. You go into the one guy and say, well, we just talked to your buddy. He said, you pulled the trigger. That's you just divided him. He's going to say, I didn't shoot anything. He did. You know, you're going to divide them out. If you leave them together, there's a unity together, and they're going to hang on to each other's story. Once you divide them out, they're vulnerable. You can intimidate them to death with whatever, and it may not even be true. 
but you can intimidate them. They don't know what's true. They already know that probably their buddy is not going to be their buddy if he can cop a plea deal and put it on them, and they're going to put it on him, and that's what you do. It's a simple, basic plan. And uh, when I have to deal with, with people, you know, and I have to deal with situations where um, I have somebody that two people are, looks like they're in collusion together, and I don't know exactly what the truth is, I will, I, I will, I will, I will, maybe not as graphically as put them in this room and this room like a police do, but I will talk to them separately, find out without the other, before the other one can get collusion to talk and get a story together, and I'll find out what this one says and find out what that one says, see if they match. You know, it's, we know it as the Solomon principle. You know, in a, in a, in a counseling scenario, you have two people, husband and wife or whatever, they're having issues. You know, you never believe one or the other. I mean, uh, the guy comes in and rags on his wife and the wife comes in and rags on her husband. I, I don't believe either one of them. I realize I've been in this business long enough to know, and I'm not meaning that they're bad people. I just know human nature. Very few people are going to take the blame for what their problems are. Why would I? I wouldn't. It's easier to blame it on you. Why would I take what, on me when I can put it on you? That's just human nature. So I know that. And every story I ever heard anybody ever tell me, I'm telling you right now, going in, going in, I know that you're going to pat it on your side. You say that sounds, I do the same thing. That's human nature. So you find yourself in a situation like Solomon did. Here's two women that came in. One said, we, we had two babies, you know, and, you know, she rolled over in hers last night and killed it. And then she got up and took mine, and now she won't give it back to me. And, and, and Solomon, didn't, Solomon didn't know who was telling the truth. He didn't know these ladies. And the Bible makes it very clear they were both harlots. Their reputation of truth is not the best on the planet. So what do you, you find yourself in those situations in life. You know what you do? He, what Solomon did, he divided. You know what he said? Okay, I don't know. You say it's your baby? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. You say it's your baby? Oh, yes, it is. Please, it's my baby. Okay. Give me a sword. Cut that baby in half. You take the bottom half. You take the top half. Everybody's happy. He wanted to divide it. And the moment he said that, the real mother said, let her have it. I'm not going to have my baby be killed. And the one who wasn't baby said, yeah, go ahead and cut it in half. You know what he did? Under the threat of dividing, he conquered so I get a situation where a husband and wife or whoever comes in, you know, and she's telling me this and he's telling me this. He's telling me all the bad things about her. She's telling me all the bad things about him. You say, how do, who do you believe? I believe both of them. I believe there's problems on both sides. You know, after 50-some years in the ministry, I have never found a situation where it was just one. I don't have enough room up here or I would tango for you. Like I did a couple Sundays ago. It hurt my back. The lady I was tangoing with was I put her down, I couldn't get her back up. I'm sorry. Takes two people to have problems. And you don't know when it is and who it is. So you know what you do? You divide. You do what Solomon did. Solomon said, bring me a sword. You put both people under the Bible, under the principles of the Word of God. And that Word of God, you know what Hebrews chapter 4 says the Word of God does? It divides. And it only takes a short period of time. And you know who's telling you the truth? I mean, that's the way it works. So the battle plan is an ingenious battle plan from a physical standpoint. If I had to fight 
an army, and uh, you know, and, uh, and a lot of this is what they did in World War II when they finally got to France. The Normandy invasion was a thing where they came ashore at Normandy, and then they spearheaded right up to it, and they they uh, they they cut the they, they divided the German army into two halves, really into three halves. So they're already fighting in Russia. They, they divided them, and that's the way they conquered them. When they tried to do Operation Market Garden in, in September of '44, that was a British deal. They tried the same thing. It didn't work, but that was their plan: the divide and then try to conquer. But they didn't follow the, their own plan, and it got it turned into a disaster. But it's a viable plan, and it's one that you will use in ministry time and time again if you want to solve somebody's problem. You just divide them out. Nothing will show you who's right and who's wrong and putting them under the sword and see it. Uh, for a husband, he can say whatever he wants to say. He can, he can, he can, what a good guy he is. At the end of the day, there are certain principles that you have to follow that if you don't, don't tell me about it. It divides you out. Woman, she can go on. I got two hands up for her. She can go on all day long. Don't you look at me like that. There are certain principles. And I had a guy one time, he, he, they come in together and he says, you know what, my wife's, my wife's really got some problems. And I said, okay. I said, what are your problems? She said, well, I don't have any, but she's got some. I said, I got news for you. Whatever her problems are, are your problems. And whatever problems she had. You know the Bible says husbands are being not bitter against your wives? You know why a husband never should be bitter against his wife? Because whatever she is is what you made her to be. Amen. Amen. <laughs> See, that's dividing and conquering. That's using the Bible to get to the bottom line root thing. Otherwise, we just all run around a big circle. He says, she said. You never get anywhere that way. You just, I, I tell you, I've, I've had couples come in and on a two-week basis. I, after I met with them, I said, okay, we're only going to take this thing two weeks at a time because I don't think you can go three. For the next two weeks, sir, here's what you do. For the next week, two weeks, sweetheart, this is what you do. Don't you worry about him. Don't you worry about her. When you come back in two weeks, I don't want to hear one thing about what the so-and-so did or what he didn't do. I want to see what the mandate I've just given you, sir, and I've given you, ma'am, did you do it? That's all I care about. Because a husband can't fix his wife. He can't. All he can do is fix himself. And a wife can't fix her husband. All she can do is fix herself. And when both people worry on fixing themselves instead of fixing each other, you've divided and now you conquer. See? It's not hard. Say, how did you learn all that? I, Joshua. Joshua. He was married and had a terrible wife. Some of you look at me like that's true. <laughs> I don't know anything about his wife. If she's anything like him, oh, she was something else. But this is a great battle plan. And, uh, you know, now, let me give you an outline of this book, because this is important, too, because it's all about dividing. Chapter, it's a real simple outline. And you want to put this up at the front of your Bible if you don't have it. 
at some point in time, I'm going to bring all of you through and give you the outline of every book in the Bible in this. But we may have to do that down the line someplace. Chapter 1 through chapter 12, here's your theme of these 12 chapters. Divide and conquer. They enter the land in chapter 1 through chapter 5. Then they conquer the land in chapter 6 through chapter 12. The second aspect of it will be chapter 13 through chapter 24. Now here it comes. Where chapter 1 through 12 was divide and conquer. Chapter 13 through 24 is divide and colonize. This is where they, they, they take the land, they occupy it, and they divide it up to the tribes. This is where the blessing of God lies. The blessing of God will only be where you colonize the promised land after you have divided and conquered the promised land. See? Now, I'll just throw this in. The first chapter 1 through chapter 12 takes 7 years. Chapter 13 through chapter 24 takes 19 years. So that's a total of 26 years, like I gave you. Uh, at the beginning, uh, you know, 1451 B.C. to 1427 B.C., by Usher's chronology. You're going to find that the Christ, uh, again, in every book of the Bible, and I'll do this uh, when we come through the books and show you, every book of the Bible portrays Christ as in a different format. Uh, I gave you, uh, I gave you uh, Exodus. Let me go back there for a moment. Uh, I didn't give it to you, just so you know what I'm talking about. In, in Exodus chapter 1, um, Christ is typified as our Passover, based on 1 Corinthians chapter 5 or 7. See, that's, the, that's how he's portrayed in Exodus. In Joshua, Christ is portrayed as the captain of my salvation. See that thing? Christ will be portrayed in a, in a different aspect from every book of the Bible. Now, I'm going to teach you that in time. We're going to get there. If you stay with me, and tomorrow you're going to get it. Tomorrow you're going to hear. You're going to understand better tomorrow after the sermon. You're going to get it. I hope you do. I need you to, anyhow. And I know some of you older ones already got it, but you younger ones got to get it. So, Joshua brings us up to the establishment of the nation of Israel. It'll run Joshua, then come over to the next book is Judges. In Joshua, they get into the land, and now they're established. Now, in the book of Judges, Christ is typified as Christ our Deliverer. Because you find uh, in the book of Judges, once they get into the land, you find a reoccurring problem with the nation of Israel, and that is they keep departing from the things of God and going back into the world into apostasy. And so God sends them deliverers, judges, that keep getting them out of the mess that they're in. And, uh, you know, it's, that's an incredible study in itself. And uh, so Christ is typified as our deliverer. The book of Judges 
is, is many things. Um, and your Bible, you have the title there, the book of Judges. I would write right over the top of that with your little pitograph pen, uh, the departing of Israel from God under the judges. And that's exactly basically what happens. And uh, Josh, Judges shows what happens to Israel uh, when good leadership goes, um, they depart from God. Israel, of course, this is after the death of Moses, after the death of Joshua. Now they're established in the land. It's been turned over to them. They don't have a king yet. And uh, and uh, we see them. We see a great principle here. And that principle is that Israel was totally dependent on good leadership. That parallels over to uh, the church today. What Christianity is missing today is simply, other than the Bible, is just one thing. Good, solid Bible leadership. There's no men today who, who lead biblically. They all lead with an ulterior motive. They all lead with what they've been taught and trained in seminary. The great theme of the book of Judges is found in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, one of the last verses. And it really sums up not only the Judges, but it sums up Christianity. And that is the fact that it says that there's no king in Israel and every man doing what is right in his own eyes. That's a picture of modern-day Christianity, the king being a final authority. For them, there was no king in Israel, meaning that they hadn't had a king yet. For you and for me, when it says no king, it means no King James Bible. <laughs> it's no accident that God put a book out under the office of a king. He knew what Judges was all about. And, J and I don't know if you know it or not, but, but Jacob or James means Jacob. I mean, uh, he's the only king that England ever had that had a Jewish name associated with it. James is Jacob. So God waited until he had a, a king on the throne, an English king with a Jewish name, because salvation was of the Jew, and he put it, it was a king because he wanted the church aid not to be like judges and to have a king. So he gave him a King James Bible for a guy by the name of Jacob, whose name was Israel, because salvation is of the Jew, and you got your book from the nation of Israel. That's how he does it. See? And, and, he, and that, just, that just comes from, from spending time in the Bible, reading history, figuring out what's going on. You won't get one lick of that in any church in this city, any church in this country probably. You certainly won't get in any Bible college. But that's the difference between Bible-based teaching and Mad Magazine. Now, the book of Judges does another thing here, which I think is a really good thing. It shows the long-suffering of God when he's committed to his people. And there's never a group that God has been more committed to than us as Christians. The Bible says he'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now, that simply means no matter what you get into in life, whatever problems you have, he may whip the fire out of you, but he'll never leave you nor forsake you. There's a Christian group out there that says, well, if you don't do what's right, God will leave you and forsake you. Well, he may leave and forsake you, but he won't me. The problem he's due because you're not saved, probably. But he'll never leave you nor forsake you. 
And of course, a person who makes that statement, a pastor who makes that statement, knows nothing about the book of Judges to show you the long suffering of God. If God, if there's ever anybody that God should have left and forsaken in Judges, it's Israel. But he just keeps sending them deliver after deliver after deliver. You know why? Because he's long suffering. You know why most of God's people cannot understand the long suffering of God? You ain't going to like this. But you're not long suffering. You'll never understand the great attributes of God till you have them yourself. And it's just that simple. I mean, that's, you, know, you would think that that would be such an easy thing to figure out. But it's not. It, one of the great things of Proverbs, you know, and again, we'll get back into Proverbs tomorrow. One of the great things about Proverbs that I like, and, you know, I probably haven't said enough about this, and I talk about this all the time. Proverbs is a great book that really lets you understand the issues of life. It really does. And we focus on that. And we study it from that aspect. But I want to tell you the, probably the greatest aspect of Proverbs outside of that. Not only does the book of Proverbs help you understand the issues of life, the book of Proverbs will point you and help you understand yourself. And there will be no understanding of the things of God till you first understand yourself. And you can pretend all you want and I've seen God's people all my ministry pretend they had it together when they did not have it together. And you know why they go through their whole life and never really do anything for God and struggle all their life? Because they won't come to the place where they get to the reality that they say, this is what's wrong with me. And look at themselves. You know, back in Genesis chapter 32, uh, you have the story when, when God met Jacob. And Jacob back there was, a, Jacob means schemer, he's a supplanter. He's doing everything his way, giving God the credit for. And, and, and in my Bible in Genesis chapter 32, I got written across the top, the day God gets you alone. And I want to tell you something. There have been days in my life when God had to get me alone. And there'll be days in your life when he has to get you alone. You know the first thing he asked Jacob when he got him alone? He didn't ask him what he did or what he didn't do. First thing he asked him, what's your name? You know what he had to say? Schemer. Supplanter. That's what Jacob means. After he gets honest with who he is, God changes his name to Israel. And then the whole life of Jacob turns to a good side. God will never change your name and make you who you want to be till you first are honest with who you really are. At that point, that's Israel's problem. Israel's problem is they just never want to admit that the problems they had. In fact, what they did was they invented a new religious system with the Sadducees and the Pharisees to make them think they're okay. Two groups that are never found in the Bible just so when Christ shows up they could pretend they were okay. And had killed the very one that God sent to be their deliverer who was going to take care of the problem that they weren't okay. If you don't see that in Christians in your life as you grow up and come through things, you miss a lot. They'll forsake the very things that God wants to take to help them, and they'll crucify the ones that want to help them, all because they won't look in the mirror and face who they really are. That was Israel's problem. But it shows the long-suffering of God. God is long-suffering toward us. If I have... Oh, I have a lot of weaknesses and if I have a lot of faults. But if I have any legitimate fault, 
I get, I personally think I have, it's I have a tendency to be too long-suffering. I have a tendency to go and go and go and go, and then I get hosed, and then I simply say to myself, well, why did I let that happen? I knew better than that. But I'd rather err on the side of long-suffering than on the side of short-suffering. I just would. Because at the end of the day, you really didn't hurt me, you hurt yourself. At the end of the day, you know, God is going to bless long-sufferingness. And I'm not putting myself up like Christ that I'm long-suffering like Him, far from that. But I am telling you, He'll never give up on you. I've had people say, well, God given up on me. No, God has never given up on you. You have given up on yourself. God will never give up on you. A lot of times they think, well, God's given up on me because somebody told God to give up. God will never give up. His long-suffering to you, he never gave up on Israel. But boy, Israel paid the price for it, didn't they? And you know what now? In the, trub- in the concentration camps of Treblinka and Auschwitz and, and Sobibor and those places during World War II, those Jews were praying to God every day of their life, and they were asking, God, where are you? Why are you allowing this to happen? God, you're so far from me. God, you're so far from us. You know what? God was never a millimeter away from the nation of Israel through all of that. It wasn't God leaving them. It was them leaving God. They couldn't see it. And you'll go through things in your life, and you'll say, God, where are you? Why aren't you here? He's right there. It's not the problem of him leaving you with the problem you left him and you won't get honest with yourself and say, I'm the problem. That's Israel. Long-suffering of God is a great thing here. Over and over and over and over again. They just give God a sharp stick in the eye. You know what he does? Keep sending them a deliverer. They get past this book and it's one, one mess after the other and everything that they do. You know what God does? Just keeps taking care of them. You know, right now, they're about as far from God as they've ever been in the history of the world, and they're such a pocket, it's unbelievable. You know where God's at? He's right there bringing them along back in the land, 1948, getting them ready for the great tribulation period. You know why? He's long-suffering. The Bible says the gifts and calling of God to Israel are without repentance. That doesn't mean that God doesn't say he's sorry. It means that God never changes his mind toward the nation of Israel, what he's going to do with them. You know why? He's long-suffering. And I'm telling you right now, the greatest characteristic of God that you can emulate in your life is being long-suffering. Put up with things. Long-suffering. Suffer long. And you know as well as I do, you get in the ministry and deal with God's people, you're going to have to suffer long. <laughs> Oh, you know how you deal with that, oh? When I get fed up with people, and I get to the point where people just drive me crazy, and I see people who know better over and over and over and over again on an extended basis, you have a tendency that you want to just write them off. Now, I'm not saying there isn't some people that need to be written off. I'm not saying that. But not... Very, very few people. Uh, you know, I mean, that's not most people. You know, most people do some stupid thing or do dumb thumb thing, and a Christian says, I'm going to write them off. Well, you know what? There are people in your life that you need to write off, maybe. But obviously, that's not in every scenario. Just because you don't like them doesn't mean you don't have to write them off. But I'll tell you this. 
when I get fed up with somebody and the stupid things they do, one of the things that always helps me is I just stop and sit down and consider all the stupid things I did for God and he's still there with me. Yeah. Kind of puts it in perspective. See, you know when Job got self-righteous? He did good almost all through the book. You know when he got self-righteous? He got self-righteous right in that place where he's defending himself to the three idiots that are there. And when he's defending himself, he got to the point where he stepped over the line and that's where he got self-righteous because he was defending himself so violently against opposition that he stepped over the line and that's where he got self-righteous. And it's an easy thing that when, when somebody does you wrong, somebody doesn't do right by you, and you have to struggle through it and deal with it, it's easy for you to forget all the times that you didn't do what was right, all the wrong things that you did, and your own self-righteousness creeps in, see? Now, I'm just saying all that to say that it's a balance. Long-suffering is, is what it means. You suffer long with somebody. And, uh, you, you, know, the, you know, and you say, well, the... the in truth of the matter, somebody says, well, you can't understand what that person did to me. You know what? The more wrong somebody did to you, the more you ought to love them. That doesn't mean they're going to be your best buddy on the planet. The more I see people do wrong, the more it just points to me that I the things that I don't do right. And, uh, you know, I just, it's a thing where, you know, you, you have to learn to be, to go the distance with people just like God went the distance with the nation of Israel. And the book of Judges is a book that shows you that and uh, brings, you, brings you to that. All right, look at the last book here, and we'll close with this. And this is First and Second Samuel. And this will be also the establishment. And here again, we see it. In First and Second Samuel, they've got through the Judges period, and now they're going to get a king. And it, it shows like most of God's people, they, they want a king that benefits them physically, not spiritually. And uh, they, want a, they want a king, you know, like all the other nations. And of course, they're not supposed to be like all the other nations. And uh, it's a thing where, you know, they, um, they, you know they, they, they quibble with Samuel. You know, they want him to, uh, they want him to give them a king. And so Samuel goes to God, you know, and he's all upset and, uh, and uh, he, he tries to work it all out with God. And uh, it's over there in chapter 8. Uh, and they say, we want, a, we want a king like all the other nations. And he says, you're not supposed to like to be the other nations. Now, that's a classic example of God's people wanting what they want versus what the Bible clearly says they should have. That's one of the best places in it. It goes to show you that even after you get established in the promised land, you're still going to have some battles to fight. You're going to have the temptation all of your life, all of your life, to think you're smarter than God. You are. If you don't beat that thing down to submission and just give it up, it's going to be the thorn in your flesh all your life. Every time you think you can do something in your life, you're going to get away with it. You're going to get ahead of God on it. You're not. You're not. You're not. And so we see here that that they get Saul. And Saul is the terrible king that, that, uh, that is just everything that, you know, he's from the wrong tribe. 
He's, he's the, from Benjamin. He's not from the kingly line of Judah. Uh, everything about Saul is wrong. And of course, God wanted David. But here again, it wasn't the, it wasn't the, uh, uh, it wasn't the first king. It was the second king. It's not your first birth. It's the second birth. That reoccurring theme throughout the Bible over and over and over and over again. And so, you know, they get Saul and he doesn't work out and God finally kills him. And then they get David. David is the beginning of the establishment of the nation of Israel. The foundation of it. David does two things. The first thing he does is he establishes, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, he establishes Jerusalem as the capital city. Most people think that Jerusalem was always the center. It wasn't. Jerusalem didn't become the capital of the nation of Israel until 2 Samuel chapter 5 when, when he comes in and he takes it from the, the, uh, the Philistines. And that's a great chapter that shows you in a practical way how to break satanic strongholds. We've talked about it before in people ministry. But it wasn't until 2 Samuel chapter 5 that Jerusalem becomes the capital city. Up to that point, the tabernacle wasn't even in Jerusalem. Most people don't know that. It was in Shiloh. And in chapter 6, this is where Uriah gets killed when they're bringing it into the city. Remember, he reached up to try to help God out with it. They're bringing it up. It was in Shiloh, and then the Philistines got it, captured it. And then David, that's what David does. The first thing David does is he establishes the, uh, he establishes the city of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Second thing that he does is he wipes out the last of all the tribes that are against Israel. He wipes out all the giants. He wipes up all the nations. He wipes out all the enemies, and he paves the way. David is the warrior king. He's a type of Christ, great type of Christ, and, and at the second coming of Christ. So most of the references in the stories about him are going to be references doctrinally about the second coming. He's the warrior king. He comes in, and he subdues the last of the nations. And he paves the way for the greatest time in history. And that will be the 40 years under Solomon. Solomon is not only a type of Christ, he's a type of the millennial reign of Christ. And for 40 years he reigns and there's no wars. Picture of the millennium. And uh, it's a great example and a great picture of showing you how uh, this thing came through. So now, you know, you, you've seen it. You've seen it really work well. We're laying the Bible out section by section. We're almost half, a little over, or not quite halfway through it yet, or about halfway through it. And you should have a clear picture of, the, of it all. Now you should see this thing developing. You should see this thing, how the Bible, the value of seeing it in sections. Section by section. Now you've got two sections here that are key sections. That by the time we get together, we'll have a short month this month because we backed it up because of the... Uh, camp. I didn't want to put everybody under the bondage of going after camp. So, But we'll only have three weeks before we get to the last one. Uh, so you'll have a shorter time period. But we'll be back on our schedule. We have the, it's the last, isn't it the last, last of the month? It's the second, September 2nd. Yeah. It's a, is it, is first of the month for this or second? Huh? Is singles ministry the last? Yeah, last one. That's what I thought. People ministry is the other. Okay. So we'll just have a few couple of weeks before we get back together with it. So we'll hold up there.